I'd like to go back to sati, to mindfulness, some of its facets. Well, I spoke uh, previous evening. Um, obviously, sati is a crucial piece in the development of, in the establishments of mindfulness, and as um, I think is an excellent translations of the Satipatthana. I spoke last night of the images of Sati as they occur in the discourses of the Buddha, the many facets in which Sati is um, brought alive in terms of analogies. Um, let us look at some of the psychological functions of Sati tonight. What does Sati actually do? when we experience uh, mindfulness. It does a, a number of uh, subtle things. First of all, it establishes a relationship to a process, internal or external. It um, connects me to the world. So with sati, I um, have a heightened and updated perceptions. In terms of Buddhist psychology, one of the underestimated functions uh, the Western mindfulness world uh, has yet to pick up on, one of the major functions of sati is it sharpens your perceptual apparatus. Yeah? So perceptions um, are treacherous. As you know, the Buddhist term sanya, um, psychologist in the room, you may have to do some rejigging here. What we call perception in Buddhist term does not entirely map with uh, perceptual psychology's base notions. Uh, let me make that very clear and short in Buddhist term. Sanya is the meeting point of something that is happening immediately in our six sense fields. So it holds part of something that is new immediate and the other part of sanya is that it tries to organize the new experience to label and understand and pigeonhole it in term in terms of something i already know so a perception is never pure from a buddhist point of view there is no pure perception you never get a clean perception Every perception is a slight mess, yeah? insofar as it tries to experience, to understand what is the result of an immediate sense perception in terms of concepts or percepts, you have that neat distinction in English, uh, percepts that are already there, that have a connection to our experience. Yeah. So that is a lot, a lot of the time is very useful you have to wait in front of a red light and you know you don't have to do much all it takes this is a red light you just wait and then it turns uh, orange and green or just green sometimes yeah. you don't need to think what is this what do i have to do can i fix this yeah a you wait and b when you wait long enough it turns green once you've done this a couple of times it doesn't really bewilder you you just wait and for that, you know, perception is very useful. It shortens procedural energies. It shortens my, it, it, it minimizes effort I have to do. In other words, as it says, ah, oh, I know this. I'm just waiting and then I drive when it's green. 
Perception is very useful for recognizing things. But perceptions um, are little frames. Imagine a, a percept is the result of a lot of serialized sense contact. Yeah? You have a lot of little sensory data coalescing into a perception. If the sensory data reaches a certain amount of density, then from the perceptual corner of your mind, something comes and says, ah, I recognize, this is this, pang. Yeah? And then it gets a label, it gets a name, it gets, a, uh, it gets an identification. And henceforth, you're no longer dealing primarily with the sense experience, you're dealing with a conceptualized version of a sense experience. Yeah? You have a name for it, you have a thought for it, you may even start to develop a concept for it. So a perception is a mongrel. It's partly something that immediately takes place and has the greatest degree of actuality possible, and it's partly a structure imposed by you in terms of your memory, in terms of your previous experience, that helps you orient yourself and organize that immediate experience. Now, the problem with perception is <clears throat> they may be distorted. If you're afraid, then things will look a lot more dangerous to you than to somebody who is not afraid. Yeah? So perceptions are not clean. The idea of bare awareness um, is also slightly dubious. Yeah? Uh, there is no bare awareness. Yeah? You do not have a neutral, bare awareness. You have maybe an awareness that is relatively untainted by greed or desire or confusion, but there is no such thing as a clean perceptual or a clean awareness experience. The man who coined that term had had some regrets towards the end of his life about uh, some of the notion of that bare awareness that has become uh, so common parlance in meditative circle. It seems to insinuate that we're actually we're capable of having an almost objective take on things, but that's, that's not true. We're never objective. You know? Objectivity is a very dubious concept and um, good scientists are at pains to explain to us that even best of science is not objective. Um, it is a construct on many, many levels. And awareness certainly isn't objective. Awareness is always specific. It comes from a particular point. If you're aware of a plate of spaghetti, then that awareness is largely called by the amount of spaghetti you have already eaten or by the amount of hunger you have. Yeah? Both give you a very different slant on this experience. Not just perceptually, but also affectively and, and volitionally. Many, many different things happen if this is the third plate of spaghetti, uh, or if you haven't eaten for three days. This will give you a very different perception of that same, apparently objectively same plate of spaghetti. Yeah? Spaghettis are never the same. <laughs> yeah? So we're never neutral. We're always 
coming from a particularized vantage point. That vantage point may be colored by need, or it may be colored by aversion, or it may be colored by greed, it may be colored by not understanding, a variety of factors. Now, all this is part of sanya. Yeah? When you have a sanya in your head, locked, and a sanya is something you can remember, a sanya is something you can name. A sanya is something you can th think about. Yeah? That's the basis for thought. So all that possible distortion, possible bent is baked into the sanya. So even if your recall of the sanya, of perceptions you have had, say, about Theresa, yeah, once you meet her again, uh, even if your perception, your recall of how Theresa was three years ago when you last met is as accurate as possible, it still may be the case that three years ago when you actually perceived Theresa, you were quite miffed with her. Yeah? So that miffedness will still be baked into, her, into your perception of Theresa, even though your recall now may be quite accurate. But the, the miffedness from then is going to linger in your perception from now. Yeah? So, however good your sati is in recalling perception, in that perception is already part of the distortion of an unawakened mind. Yeah? So you may recall an already distorted memory of Theresa. Yeah? And when you see her again, you will meet her not just with clean awareness, but you will meet her with the perception, oh yes, I remember Theresa, yeah. We had a little thing there, yeah. So one of the functions of sati, to go back to sati, is to update perceptions. Perceptions are good. In fact, they're indispensable and quite useful, but it's important to have them updated. Frequent updating of perception is necessary. Otherwise, they go stale, they go obsolete. Now, the problem is if we don't update perceptions, and usually we update perceptions of things we like a lot more often. You know? There's more patches. You know? The update cycle is a lot better for things we like than for things we don't like. Um, if we do that, then we become aware of more and more facets of what we meet in our perceptual process. Think of it as, if you love somebody, it's very simple, then you will have lots of perceptions of, these, of, of a loved one. You will update these perceptions frequently because you love to dwell with your attention with your loved one. What that means is uh, you will see many, many facets of that being. You will see that person in a whole range of differing shades, how he or she manifests. When you're asked how he or she is, then you will find it hard to just pin them down to three adjectives. Yeah. That's why people we are genuinely fond of, we can often not quite name how they are. Yeah. And yet, for people whom we don't like, yeah, this seems to be remarkably easy, isn't it? We have fairly crisp perceptions, we have an easy recall of those perceptions, and it seems um, they just stay that way, isn't it? He doesn't really change, does he? Yeah. Because when I had my dealings with him, 
it was so unpleasant, you know, I just tried to keep it as short as possible. I've arrived at my definitive, definitive opinion about him. Whenever the topic comes to him, I say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, wait, I, I kind of wake up this perception of him, which is a caricature, three-course three brushstroke, and the guy's caricatured there. And I will recall that quite easy. I find it not difficult, because I do not give this person a lot of attention. It is very easy for me to reduce this person to a couple of features. Yeah, stingy, selfish. Yeah, typical narcissist. Yeah, got it. Yeah, always been one, will always be one. Thank you very much. No, no time for him. Yeah, and the poor guy has no chance. You know, once you've decided this, you will not give him your attention. Even if he's changed, even if he's become sweet, you know, and generous and loving, you will not notice because you just don't bother giving him your attention. So before you can update a perception, you need to give somebody attention and sustain that attention long enough that this person becomes actually um, acknowledged in your system as having changed. You have to acknowledge how this person now makes you feel. And maybe you have to discard your old perception. And this is work. Yeah? So perceptions have a tendency to solidify, to reify a world that is fluid, yeah? to put it simply. So one of the functions of sati is to keep minimizing the fault in the system. We don't really have a choice. We do need perceptions, and it is in the nature of the mind to operate with perception. Without perceptions, we keep being stuck in some kind of bloated now, our fingers fully wired to the world of the senses, and it's kind of, yeah? It's kind of, in a sort of speechless way, intense. Yeah? We're completely immersed, but we have no language there. We have no reflectiveness. We have no recollection. We have no clear comprehension. We're just in it. Yeah? So nobody can live there. Yeah. So what we do is we jump from the level of immediate experience, where things are either self-evident or confusing, onto a level of abstraction in which we start to have categories, we have labels, we have names, we have concepts. In between is the perception as the raw material for a concept, as the raw material for thinking. The perception is the serialized version of my sense experience matched with my experience. Yeah? And then I come to some form of name or concept, uh, relationship. Oh, well, I recognize this. And the next stage up is I, I'm going to think about this. Yeah? I've evolved a, a big system. Theresa is a big system now. It's not just one thing. It's, it's, Theresa is many things. Now the trick is not to use these layers against each other, but to move back and forth from them. If we just down here, we're kind of a little adolescent, yeah? We're seeking intensities, we're seeking immersion, we're, we're looking for vitalization through being completely in things, which is necessary. If we're up here, um, we, we are a little bit removed. There is a slight distance there. We have paid the price for our capacity to move and think 
speak, recall, write about. The, we have paid a certain price in terms of closeness to the immediacy below. But only here we have language, only here we have memory, only here we have reflection possible, speech possible, perspective possible. If we're too far removed from it, it becomes hollow, it becomes empty. Yeah? Our concepts are getting increasingly removed from an immediate experience. So the trick is to go back and forth between those two. Yeah? And the Buddha is very clear in his uh, understanding of the perceptual process that we don't really have a choice about whether our mind thinks or not. He makes it very plain. He says, you know, whatever is going to touch you in the realm of your senses, you are going to pick up on. You're going to have a feeling tone for. You are, you are going to have Vedanas for this. Whatever gives you feeling tone, you're going to have perceptions about. Yeah? And obviously what you're going to have perceptions about, you're going to think about. And some of the things you think about, you're going to obsess about. That's where you start having a choice. You don't really have a choice about not having perceptions, but you do have a choice where it goes from there. How much obsession is involved, how much volition is involved, how much ignorance is involved. So we need to become more nimble in moving back and forth between a level of immediate sensory experience, without which we are very poor. If this is not happening, we're just kind of eggheads, basically. Yeah? Conceptualizing stuff we have no clue of, we have no actual immediate experience of. And at the same time, we can't stay down there, otherwise we are quite mute. We're quite helpless. We're locked into things. Pleasure, then we're kind of buzzing. Pain, then we're kind of collapsing. So we need that move out of this immediacy into a world in which we can handle perception and even concepts and then go back, leave the apparent clarity, the neatness of concepts, the order, the structure, the sequence, all the patterns we've imposed, Causality is a neat thing, but you don't get it in a level of immediacy, isn't it? Eating sugar doesn't give you the same feeling as paying a, a dentist bill, and yet there is a causal connection. But it, you don't taste that in the sugar, isn't it? The immediacy of sugar is sweet. It is not this, the bitterness of a dentist's bill. But there is definitely a causal connection between sugar consumption and the state of your teeth but it's not felt immediately. The sweetness seems to be absolutely innocent of the bitterness of a dental bill. Yeah. So at the level of apparent immediate experience, it's always ever now. Yeah. And some things you will never understand now. Yeah. I, um, there's a lot of talk about now in Buddhist circles, and I, I'm uneasy about now, to be honest with you. I think now is a Buddhist fantasy. It has become a sort of a hypostasized concept. You know? Now is a place that if I move in finally into the now, then I'm safe. Ooh. Yeah. I stay at the crest of the wave all the time. You know? The surf never ends. <laughs> yeah. But that's not true. Yeah. 
we don't know what now is, to be honest. Neurologically, now is God knows what, depending. If you, if you have a lot of samadhi, then now is a long stretch. Yeah? If you have ADHD, then now is a lot shorter stretch. Our nervous system is geared so that things that happen roughly within about a second feel like they are chunked into one moment of experience. Yeah? Now, as a sort of as the power of now, and so is a, is a very weird concept in terms of Buddhist psychology. It doesn't actually exist in Buddhist teaching. The Buddha never speaks of now. You know? He never says, "Be in the now." You know? We all thank Ram Das for this. I'm wearing my Ram Das hat. You may have seen it. I'm a fan of him. I read his book, which is, you know, great life changer. But. The concept of now does not find any substantiation in Buddhist teaching, just to be clear. The concept that is used in Buddhist teaching is, has literal a different meaning. It says, that which is presently arisen. Yeah? This is a very different statement. It speaks of things that are presently arisen. It acknowledges conditionality. Living in the now does not acknowledge conditionality. It does not acknowledge that things have a connection. So it's important that when we try to bring our mind back into the present moment, we don't kind of go into a glorification of a philosophical metaphysic, which says, which is called now. You know, what used to be paradise for other religions is is now the now for Buddhists. So other religions try to get into paradise, and Buddhists try to move into the now, and believing that no bad things can happen in the now. The truth is, horrible things can happen in the now. Yeah. And it's important to know that um, we, we should make sure that we don't solidify a concept, which is a badly understood concept to start with, which is attributed to the Buddha, which suggests, who suggested that basically we should make sure that we re keep relating to pre present experience. Uh, and that if we do that, we start to develop a type of fluidity in our experience, and then after a while, that fluidity stabilizes into a, a, a strong capacity to be meeting, arising of sensation, arising of inner and outer experience. Um, turn this type of teaching into a sort of pie in the sky teaching, which says, which meditators flag themselves with, you know, who are never in the now, obviously. Meditators are never in the now. I have so many meditators who are trying to get into the now and move in there and stay there. And it's difficult. You know, because that now, the more you meditate, becomes more expansive. Yeah. And that now is a sequence of things. It has not lost its dynamic nature. That's why the Buddha calls this Pachupanadhamma, that which is presently arisen, rather than now. There are many, there are several words for now in Buddhist discourse. None of them have a philosophical meaning. None of them have any prominence in the teaching. So sati has as one of its functions to connect this to that which is presently arisen, 
and to free ourselves from stale, old or just plain obsolete perceptions and meet what is happening afresh. And sati has another function, it does foreground things. Yeah? Sati creates a foreground and a background. So you, if you just open your eyes and not focus on anything, you can, you can just turn this world into, a, into f blobs of color. Yeah? If you don't, and that takes a little training, if you stop focusing, sometimes um, on visual objects, if you stop, and there is a lot of conditioning for our eye to do that, focus on things. Yeah. We go into room and we focus on people and things, what's there. We don't focus on the space, we focus on the stuff that's in the space. But you can, with some training, just keep your visual gaze open. You can sit in the station and just have people, have color blobs move through your field of vision. Yeah? You just pixelize them a little. You go from, you know, you go from retina display down to an old sort of grisly uh, 400 by 600 480 by by 640 display yeah and already you know things become a lot less clear you can take it real down you know there, there were simpler displays before that <laughs> and you just get color yeah you don't latch onto man woman old young well dressed shoddy shoddily dressed yeah you don't do all this you just kind of see colors moving we can easily do that. Now, obviously, this makes sometimes not sense to do that. It is a very powerful exercise because it teaches us how habituated our eye is to, to latch onto things, yeah? to reify the world of my visual experience. Ah, Matt. Ah, this is Anna. Ah, this is a blanket. Ah, this is a chair. Ah, this is the exit. So sometimes it makes sense to dissolve all this, yeah, color. That's what we do when we practice with the khandhas. We just dissolve things into different categories of experience. We'll do that later. And sometimes it makes sense to be precise and identify yeah, an empty mat. Where is she? Yeah. Sati brings certain aspects of our perceptual world into the foreground and gives it weight and other things are going in the background. It's very simple. This is a function of attention. You can read it up very neatly. Uh, William James over 100 years wrote it very nicely. You know, attention consists not just on focusing on some things, but it also focuses, it also consists of withdrawing your attention from other things in favor of the thing you have chosen. Yeah. So one of the things attention does as part of sati is it foregrounds. Yeah. There is a prioritizing of certain things. You, uh, somebody told me today that she has found an unusual animal in her room. So I tell you this because you should be wary of all kinds of animals, particularly of ticks. Yeah, just because you don't go to the forest doesn't mean you don't get any ticks. Yeah, ticks can 
come in and ticks move sometimes on a pair of jeans into a building and then they take another room so even if you may not go into the grass or into the forest have a good look at uh, the various soft spots on your body where ticks might uh, feast uh, so don't be under the uh, impression that just because you don't go in the forest you're basically safe you're never safe yeah yeah, yeah. and none of us is going to survive this anyway <laughs> so the perception you know sometimes it makes a lot of sense to sharpen one's perception and say what is this you know does this need a response right now yeah this is not the moment to pixelize your experience and go into a profound contemplation on the nature of visual experience you know sometimes you actually need to do things you need to respond and in such a moment um, uh, an aspect called attention which is part of mindfulness zooms in and delineates a particular facet of your experience and gives great sharpness to that small uh, call out in your experience and focuses on this and this is useful Many of us go with this particular pattern way beyond its usefulness. You know, while it is useful in some areas of our life, we keep doing this kind of honing in on a very minute aspect of experience and fixating on this very much at the expense of other aspects of our experience. Some of us do that a lot. Yeah. Some of us don't do enough of this. So we're kind of spacing through the world. Yeah, and things just organically happen and they have nothing to do with our desires or with our responsibility. They just kind of, some of them wondrous and some of them, you know, I'm kind of victimized and why does this and why me? Yeah. And some of us are keep keeping, keep moving through the world and fixating on little bits, which, you know, depending on how your charges are very promising to be obtained and had or are very offensive, you know, just the fixating alone does not guarantee that what we get is nice. So there are various temperaments and they tend to have differing uh, responses happening to the fixation of the mind. But there is a strong pattern, particularly in our visual world, to reify things, to thingify the world, to keep getting things. Look at the world, not in terms of process, the dynamic or what led to it, its conditionality or its context, but to keep isolating things and putting them in the foreground. And then we have generally quite strong reactions to this, either in terms of fear would be one, desire would be another one, aversion would be a third one. Those are the famous ones. Yeah. There may be a few others. Yeah doubt, maybe one, disgust, or maybe one, but generally it's fear, aversion, and desire, which are very well-documented uh, patterns in response to a world that our, particularly our eye has focused on and fixated upon. So if you go out here tonight, uh, be interesting to just See whether you can see more of the space, the space that makes possible that, you know, 
there are people in here, there are mats in here. The space that makes possible uh, in which this forest refuge stands. The space where the tree stands in. Yeah? The space where the bed in room stands in, that you acknowledge not just a thing in the space, but you actually move away from the thing. You say, okay, what is the thing necessitate? It needs a space around it, isn't it? It needs a space for the thing to be there. So you try, try to consciously widen your perception. Move away from the thing. That's a very interesting little sati exercise. Just thing, okay, what makes the thing possible? Ah, okay. In meditation, you translate that into an awareness. That's where we're back to sati. You can shift your habituated attention patterns onto the thing or the event or the, Im the impingement to the gap between impingements. Easy with sounds. Yeah. It's the kind of that bird song at midday, which is rare, which gives you a sudden awareness of the silence out of which that bird song emerges. It's the piercing of that little bird which makes you actually aware of the silence that surrounds it. So you begin to shift some of your awareness from its event focus to the space to the poles, uh, to the field around the thing, the event, the sound, the thought. Just sitting there and feeling the space around your thoughts. You know? So it's an interesting little exercise. Rather than antagonizing with your thoughts, say, you shouldn't be here, guys. We're meditating three days. I wish you weren't here. I wish there wasn't so much comment going on in my head. I wish I, wish I had... Um, routed all these hindrances. I wish I was different. Maybe I should have gone to Burma instead. Yeah. Tough food, but better teaching. You know, so many awakened beings in Burma. Who knows what has happened in a forest refuge? We don't know. Is anybody awakened? Yeah. Will there anybody? Can you be awakened when you eat kale? You know, don't know. Doubt, doubt, doubt. Yeah. So you go into this kind of mode. And you, instead of doing this, you just kind of see, okay, this is familiar twittering of my mind. And then there is the background of this. There seems to be, it's not twittering all the time. It has to catch breath occasionally. Even that mind has to catch its breath occasionally. So, ah, there was a gap. And there's a gap. And there seems to be some space behind all this. And then we become more aware of a space that underpins the event that is part of our experience. N try playing with this a little bit. Going round when you notice that your perceptual process latches onto. You know? Yet another day without my favorite salad dressing. Yeah. We need another planet. It can't. Things can't continue that way. You know? you know, when you notice yourself in this perception, you say, "Oh, okay." Salad dressings, and then the space around the salad dressing, the space around the labels, the impulse, the space around the impulse. 
you begin to become wider in your awareness. So while sati has one of its functions, create foreground and background, you reverse engineer this pattern yeah? as a meditator. You reverse engineer this thing. You unpack it. You go from thing back to the space. Out of which did this emerge? Not in an analytic way, but wh what is the space this takes? Uh, one of my teachers had a lot to say about this. He was very much into the space around thoughts. It's a good exercise. If you're obsessing with thoughts, or if you're finding fault with some of what these thoughts are saying to you, um, treat them with that spaciousness. Let them provoke them with non-reaction, with your, with your disobedience. Uh, disobedience yeah? Instead of entering into dialogue with them, you just kind of carefully hold the space that envelops them. Yeah? Every naughty little thought has a whole package of space around it. Just kind of and say, hmm, you're part of a package, aren't you, isn't it? Yeah? And you're looking at the space rather than looking at the thought. And then the thought will generally start to quiver a little bit and go onto the pile of old thoughts you know, behind the curtain. So sati has another function I want to uh, mention tonight. One function of sati is it recalls what has been lost. Um, if you have a task, let's say as I spoke today in plan A and plan B, and you notice that you have lost your task, then sati is capable of recalling the task even though you may be off task right now. Yeah, that's one of the generally there's a little embarrassment there. You know, you may feel a little sheepish or you may go one further and say, ah, it still blown it, hasn't here I go again. Yeah. But instead of doing this, Acknowledge that sati is capable of recalling something that you have lost. Yeah. That already is sati. To know that your mind is distracted, that already is an aspect of sati. It's not the whole story, but it already is an aspect of sati to actually acknowledge that right now you have lost attentional focus on the task you have promised yourself to be doing. And the next step is obviously sati brings back the task. Yeah? It recalls yeah, what has been slipping out of your mind's focus. So instead of thinking, here I go again, uh, I can't concentrate, I've been fiddling with some issue in my life for the last 15 minutes. Instead of thinking that way, think, oh, my wonderful sati has made it possible for me to recall something I have lost 15 minutes ago. Look at that, how wonderful. And you bring back your attention to the task and you have strengthened a wholesome habit, you have weakened an unwholesome habit. And that is sati. It doesn't feel great. You may not feel victorious in the process, but it is sati. And by affirming this, you both affirm the wholeness of your mind and you affirm a wholesome habit, namely a practice of um, strengthening your 
mental stability uh, and your attentional stability, and you have weakened a habit, namely random association on the basis of triggers, you know, fairly compulsive triggers. And that also is an aspect of sati. So sati is not just kind of you there holding it all together, all five khandas there in your fingertips, you know, and it's not moving away because you're so powerful. Yeah. Sati is also that which is capable of noticing what is gone out of the picture and the capacity to bring it back. That's a wonderful aspect of sati. Yeah, let me stop here. There are many, there are a few more, but for tonight, enough. You hear enough of me. Yeah. Good. Good. Meditate a moment and then do some recitation. I have some more Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.